is Philippians 2, verses 12 through 30, and it goes like this. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For God is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not ruin in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a libation upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I may be cheered by the news of you. I have no one like him who will be genuinely anxious for your welfare. They all look after their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. But Timothy's worth, you know, how as a son with a father, he has served me with the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself can come also. I've thought it necessary to send you Ephroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger to minister to my need. For he's been longing for you all and distressed because you have heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death, but God had mercy on him, not only on him, but me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious." So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete your service to me. This is the word of the Lord. Well, so much for that. That was just so beautiful. Uh, my heart is filled with joy from that music. Um, Good morning. It is such a pleasure and a privilege to stand in this pulpit while Sean and his family are away. I know they are in our prayers, and I know we wish nothing but the best for them until they return. Now, before I begin, I just want to take a moment of personal privilege. We were a little under the weather last week, so we had to stay home, so we heard the big announcement from our living room. And I just want to say 
from the bottom of my heart, Rupert, I congratulate you and Cheryl for just a life of ministry, for a long career in the work of the gospel, and it is such an accomplishment. It is such an accomplishment. We are relatively new here to Monument Heights, and uh, you know, so you might think that we've just run into Rupert in the last couple of months, but when I was growing up, my family went to Second Baptist, where Rupert was on staff. So Rupert has been a part of my church-going life since I was younger than my son. So I thank God for you and your work, and I know that He will make your path straight before you. Before we begin our sermon, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Almighty God, we thank you for your very many blessings, especially that we can gather here as your children and study your word. Prepare us to hear the word you would have for us today. I know that I am totally inadequate for this task, and I ask that you be with me and help my words to be your words. In Christ's name, amen. Now, I have to reiterate what a privilege it is to stand before you, and doubly so because Sean has asked me to continue our sermon series on Paul's letter to the Philippians. Our text for today is found in the second chapter of that letter, verses 12 through 30, and I I invite you to take your Bible and to turn there and to follow along as we work through those verses. Philippians is sometimes called the epistle of joy because, as we have already seen, Paul continuously speaks of his own joy, and throughout the letter he calls upon his readers to rejoice with him. But we get the wrong idea if we think that this letter is in any way unserious or unweighty or unconcerned with the sometimes hard realities of human existence. Paul's letter is in no way like one of those self-help books that tries to get you to forget about the difficulties of life just by concentrating on the bright side of life or something like that. No, Paul's joy arises from and gives meaning to his own harsh circumstances. At the time he writes this letter, he's sitting in prison. He's facing the possibility of the death penalty. Paul's joy arises neither from his pleasant life circumstances, which do not exist, nor from the simplistic smoothing over of the rough edges of his life, nor from a determination to think optimistically when the future looks bleak. No, as we have seen throughout our series, Paul's joy arises from a single-minded devotion to Christ and Christ's gospel. Paul rejoices because of what Christ has accomplished, is accomplishing through this present circumstance, and will certainly bring to completion no matter how Paul's situation turns out. We have read together as Paul rejoices in his imprisonment and the way it has advanced the gospel and in his certainty that the work Christ has begun, he will bring to completion. And it is this certain hope that allows Paul to declare in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But we have also seen that what we do in this world matters, and it matters a lot. The joy that arises from the certainty that we have in Christ Jesus doesn't rob this present life of its meaning. 
We are not just passive observers biding our time until the good Lord comes. That is not the message of Philippians, just the opposite. In this letter, Paul shows us that the gospel of Christ infuses everything we do with meaning, with purpose, and with power. God is at work in this very moment, and He is working through you, and He is working through me. We don't rejoice because this life doesn't matter. We rejoice because through the work of Christ Jesus, this life does matter. We can be certain that God is at work in whatever challenges we face in this life to bring about the redemption of the world. And this gives us joy and it gives us confidence. As Sean put it in his first sermon of this series, the letter to the Philippians emphasizes the joy of the gospel as it provides grounding and confidence for suffering and service. Christ's action produces deep gratitude and confidence which enables the believer to follow in the cruciform way of humility and self-denial. As we approach our text today, we find ourselves deep in the heart of Paul's exhortation to live the cruciform life. That is, to live a life conformed to the humility and obedience of Christ Jesus our Lord. Our sermon title today is God's Work and the Christian Life, and again we are covering chapter 2, verses 12 through 30. But as we turn to verse 12, we immediately notice that the first word of our passage is therefore. This word, therefore, lets us know right off the bat that our text does not stand in isolation. That is, Paul is saying, on the basis of what I have just said, on the basis of what I have just said, I now say the next thing. So before we can dig into our verses for today, we must remind ourselves and have firmly in hand what Paul has written in the verses leading up to our sermon text. We can't stay within the limits of chapter divisions either. Those aren't original to the text. Paul didn't sit down and write chapter 1 and say, okay, I'm done with that part. Now I'm going to write chapter 2. He just sat down and he wrote a letter to the Philippians. And when they received the letter, they read it all front to back just like we would. So we can't let those things stop us. So when we keep these things in mind and we step back, we see that verses 12 through 30 of chapter 2 continue and conclude an extended discussion of the Christian life that begins back in chapter 1, verse 27. There Paul says, live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And when some 15 verses later we arrive at our text for today, Paul is still explaining exactly what it looks like to live a gospel-worthy life. So he begins in chapter 127 by exhorting us to live a life worthy of the gospel, and he goes on to explain that this calling is one that requires us to stand side by side, unified for the faith. Now, this idea that the fundamental defining characteristic of the Christian life is the unity of the Christian community is not unique to Philippians. In fact, it is precisely similar to what we see in Ephesians chapter 4. In Philippians, Paul presents the unified Christian body as a witness to the world around us. And he does this in Ephesians as well, by the way. We see at the end of chapter 1 that when we stand firm side by side for the gospel, we give evidence to our opponents both of the coming judgment 
and also of our great salvation that we have in Christ Jesus. This just goes to show you what the stakes are. The call to live in Christian unity, the call to live the Christian life is vitally important, and what is at stake is nothing less than the gospel itself. So if this gospel unity is so important, how are we supposed to maintain it? Well, Ephesians as well as Philippians both tell us the answer is not found in suppressing opposing viewpoints. It's not found in stamping out dissent. It's not found in telling, you know, our troublemakers to keep their opinions to themselves once in a while. That's not how we have unity. Rather, the toolkit that God gives us to achieve unity is one that we apply primarily to ourselves. In Ephesians 4, that looks like being humble, being gentle, being patient, and putting up with one another. And here in Philippians, we see likewise in chapter 2, verses 3 through 4, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Again, Christian unity is not something primarily to be enforced. It is something to be achieved together through humility. And specifically, it is achieved by conforming ourselves to the life of Christ, his own humility, and his own obedience. And it's for that reason that Paul provides for us in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, what is sometimes called the Christ hymn. It is one of the most important, historically interesting, theologically valuable, and rich passages of the entire New Testament. And Paul here uses this text as an illustration. He's showing the Philippians, and indeed he is showing us, what it looks like to live a life worthy of the gospel is simply to follow in the footsteps of Christ Jesus. Because it is so theologically important, because it is so beautiful, and because of the fact that it explicitly underlies our text for today, these are the verses that immediately precede our text for today, I think it's worth, for, worth it for us to hear them, hear these words in full. From verse 5. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, and being born in human likeness. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We see here the full preexistent divinity of Christ. We see the one true eternal God who emptied himself and became one of us. The incomprehensible became comprehensible. The infinite became finite. The almighty God became a babe in a manger. The creator of the world entered into this creation in order to redeem it through his humble obedience even to the point of death on a cross. But the humiliation of the cross gave way to victory. 
and the darkness of the grave gave way to glory, and the promise is made, and the future is certain, that at the top of a text, that we come to the therefore that begins our text in verse 12. Paul is saying, on the basis of what Christ has accomplished, is accomplishing, and certainly will accomplish, verse 12, therefore... My beloved, just as you have always obeyed me, not only in my presence, but much more now in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What should our response be to what Christ has done for us? What could we do? We already saw that the Christ hymn was used first as an example of our humility. And now, Paul is using it as the grounds for our obedience. In the end, all of creation will recognize the lordship of Christ, so we ought to do so now by living lives of obedience to him, just as he showed perfect obedience in his own earthly life. Christ is Lord, and he is Lord right now, so we ought to live like it. The relationship that Christ will one day have with all the world, we already now have with him, and we should embody it through our actions. What else does it mean to live a life worthy of the gospel except to conduct ourselves in our present circumstances as citizens of heaven? Notice that just like back in chapter 1, verse 27, the obedience of the Philippian church is not in any way dependent upon the physical presence of the apostle. The purpose of their obedience actually doesn't have anything to do with Paul whatsoever at all. The command of God might very well come to them, at least at first through the apostle, but Paul is not their Lord. Christ is. The Christian life of obedience continues when Paul is in prison. It continues after Paul's death and will continue until that day when every knee shall bow, whether we have an apostle looking over our shoulder or not. So what is the relationship of this obedience to the Christian life? It is that we work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, we as Baptists might initially blush at a verse that connects salvation with work so closely. After all, isn't salvation by grace, through faith, and not of works? First of all, I should say that yes, absolutely, we believe firmly that the basis of our right standing with God is the work of Christ and the work of Christ alone. I have nothing in myself that makes me right with God. It is only through faith in Christ Jesus that I can stand before an almighty God. Yes, we believe that. And it is precisely because of the confidence we have in the finished work of Christ that we can approach these texts that speak about works and speak about the vital importance of works without fear. In these verses, we see a two-part theme that occurs consistently throughout Paul's letters. The first part is that we are saved because of what God has done for us in Christ rather than anything we have done to earn it. That's bedrock. The second part is that because of what God has done for us, because of the fact that God has saved us, we've got some work to do. 
They go together. In fact, this is precisely what we see in those famous verses from Ephesians 2 that perhaps many of you have memorized. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not because of works, lest any man should boast. But the apostle immediately goes on to say in the very next verse, For we are his worksmanship, created in Christ Jesus, listen, for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Are we saved by works? No. No, we're not. Are works absolutely necessary to the living of the Christian life? You better believe it. Because of what Christ has done for us, our identity is now found in Christ, and we are called to imitate his life. As Romans chapter 6, verses 2 through 4 says, How can we who died to sin go on living in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him by baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so too we might walk in newness of life. Paul will go on to say in Philippians chapter 3 that our citizenship is now in heaven. And I think that the, the, the central point of this exhortation to Christian living that begins in chapter 1 verse 27 and continues all the way through our verses is that we must conduct ourselves like we are citizens of heaven, living in such a way that reflects the gospel to the world around us and that follows after the model of Christ's own life. By doing this, we see here in verse 12 of our passage that we make sure our own salvation, even as by our conduct, we proclaim the salvation of God to the world around us. Notice here that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. This is a standard phrase that Paul uses throughout his letters to indicate our attitude, primarily to indicate our attitude towards other human beings as we relate to them. So yes, we affirm with the proverb that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But I think that what we have in view here is the way we go about the business of salvation in relationship to one another and the world around us. It's just like what Paul says to the Corinthian church. When I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come proclaiming the mystery of God to you in lofty words or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I came to you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Paul was not afraid of the Corinthians. No, Paul knew that he had nothing within himself to hold over the Corinthians. He knew who he was. He knew that he was the chief of sinners. He knew that he had nothing within himself that could make him right with God. All he had to offer was the gracious gospel of Christ Jesus that had saved him. That should be our attitude as we seek to live a life worthy of the gospel, knowing that the only thing that separates citizenship in this world from citizenship in heaven is the gospel of Christ and the grace of God. Fear and trembling. 
As we move into verse 13, we see that just as we discussed, the foundation of our own work is the fact that God is at work in us, enabling, or perhaps better, producing with us, both within us, both the desire to follow after the example of Christ and also the ability to do so. We are not left on our own to try and do our best and hope that it's good enough. No, whatever good thing that we do arises from what Christ has already accomplished for us and is now accomplishing through us. Yes, Paul exhorts the Philippians to work out their own salvation, and he does so in a way that demands that they take their efforts seriously. It really does matter. It matters what they do. But at the same time for Paul, the outcome is not at all in doubt. As he says in the opening verses of this letter, I am confident of this, that the one who began a good work among you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. So we have confidence to work, knowing that it is God who is working in us. And we should also see here that it is God who is at work through us. When we set about the business of our own salvation, seeking to live lives of humility and obedience worthy of the gospel of Christ, our willing and our working is for his good pleasure. I really like the way Lightfoot uh, translates this in his classic commentary. I think he really just captures the meaning well. He says that God works mightily in us to will and to work in fulfillment of his benevolent purpose. I think that's what for his good pleasure means. This is all working together for his purposes. As we are about to see, this purpose involves us shining like lights, bearing witness to the world around us. I pick up with verses 14 through 16. Do all things without murmuring and arguing so that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation in which you shine like stars in the world. It is by your holding fast to the word of life that I can boast on the day of Christ that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. I think in these verses, Paul has in mind the people of Israel in the wilderness after they were were brought out of Egypt through the Exodus. If you remember that story, rather than being filled with awe and wonder and gratitude for what God had done, they were often grumbling and murmuring. And in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 5, Moses describes them this way. He calls them blemished children, a crooked and perverse generation. But now, because of what Christ has done among the Philippians and in their lives, Paul uses those very same words to show that they and all who believe are indeed children of God, but now without blemish and in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. The life of Christian humility and obedience is not a burden that should provoke complaining, but a powerful transformation that produces joy within the household of God for the children of God. And what is it that makes us different? What distinguishes us as the children of God and makes us, as the text says, to shine like stars? It's not that there's anything special within us, but rather it's what we see in verse 16 
It's that we have and we hold on to and we proclaim the word of life. We know the answer to the question, what must I do to be saved? It is nothing else but believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So let our lives be transformed by that answer so that we shine forth the gospel of Christ to the world around us. And it is about the transformation of sinners into the, uh, into the children of God brought about by this gospel proclamation and only about the gospel transformation we're talking about here that Paul expects to boast on the day of Christ. On that day when every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord, we're going to look around and we're going to see the results of God working in us both to will and to work according to His good pleasure. That is the end state that God is working towards. That is the end state that God is going to bring about. That is what God is doing through you and through me. When we set out to live our lives worthy of the gospel, we are doing nothing less than actively participating in God's plan to redeem all of creation. And on that day, we can brag, but we can brag about nothing else but Christ and what he has done through the gospel in us and through us. But in the meantime, even as we reflect on future triumph, we cannot forget that the realities of the present life will not always bring us worldly success and happiness. In fact, as we have already seen, our calling to live a worthy life might very well lead us down a path that looks like the path of Jesus, who is obedient unto death on a cross. I pick up with verses 17 through 18. But even if I am being poured out as a libation over the sacrifice and offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. And in the same way, you also must be glad and rejoice with me. So a libation is a type of drink offering. Um, it can be wine, it can be strong drink, it's poured out on the altar or even on the ground. Um, it's uh, you know, you can offer it to gods or you can offer it to the true God. We see drink offerings in the Old Testament. Uh, you can offer it on behalf of uh, loved ones who have since passed, right? Perhaps we get, we get an image of this in the, uh, in the tradition that we have in our own day and age. I know especially it's common among military people to pour one out for those who have, uh, who have fallen on the battlefield, right? That's what we're talking about with a libation, but what Paul is talking about here using this sacrificial language is that he himself, his own life, is that libation. And it's going to be mixed with the sacrifice of the faith of the Philippians. He is talking about the possibility or even the likelihood of his own death. Remember, he is in prison for the gospel. He is facing a possible death sentence for the gospel. And oh, by the way, he is actually going to die one day for the gospel. And he is putting all of this in sacrificial terms. If his life must be poured out sacrificially, let it be mingled with the sacrifice of the Philippians' faith so that they both bring glory to God. And it is in this context of the flourishing of the gospel the proclamation and the success of the gospel that Paul says, if I die, 
If I am poured out as a libation, if I die, I am glad and I rejoice and you should rejoice with me. This is the response of someone who has completely reoriented his life around the gospel. Whatever happens to me is fine, he says, as long as the gospel advances and God gets the glory. Now, most of us will probably not be called upon to lay down our lives for the gospel, but every single one of us is called upon to live our lives for the gospel. And that is what this section that begins back in chapter 1, verse 27 is about. Living our lives in a way that is worthy of the gospel in humility and obedience. And when it comes to an end here in chapter 2, verse 18, we see that the result, no matter what the circumstances are, must be joy. Now, as we seek to apply these verses to ourselves... We could find no better examples than what Paul provides in the closing verses of chapter 2. First through the example of Timothy, then through the example of Epaphroditus, Paul shows us exactly what it looks like to live a life worthy of the gospel. I read verses 19 through 24. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I may be cheered by news of you. I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. All of them are seeking their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But Timothy's worth, you know. How like a son with a father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I will also come soon. Again, we shouldn't be misled by Paul's joy into thinking that he is in a good situation. He's not. He's in prison, uncertain about his future. He is surrounded by selfish people who don't seem to care much for Paul or for the gospel. He frankly seems to be quite alone. So in this situation, who is he going to send to the Philippians on his behalf? Who can he trust to represent him well and maybe bring back a little bit of good news? He can rely on his faithful fellow worker, Timothy. Timothy had left everything behind to join Paul in gospel ministry. And through this, he became perhaps one of his most important associates. He is listed as the co-author of this letter and also of 2 Corinthians, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, and 5. And of course, 1 Timothy are addressed to this Timothy. Paul frequently refers to him as a brother, and here he likens their relationship to that of a father and a son. So what is the basis of their close relationship? It is that Timothy is as completely committed to the gospel of Christ and to the work of that gospel as is Paul himself. He is not selfish like the others, but rather seeks after the things of Christ. He lives a life worthy of the gospel in humility and obedience. And because of that, Paul knows he can trust Timothy to have a genuine concern for the Philippian church. But in the meantime, Paul needs to keep joy in the midst of sitting in a prison cell being all alone, wanting to send Timothy because he's the only one he can trust, but not 
because he needs him with him until he finds out what's going to happen to him. So who will Paul send to carry this letter to the Philippian church? I pick up now with our final verses, 25 through 30. Still, I think it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and co-worker and fellow soldier, your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for all of you and has been distressed because he, he heard that you knew that he was ill. He was indeed so ill that he nearly died. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, so that we would not have one sorrow after another. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, in order that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. Welcome him then in the Lord with all joy, and honor such people, because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for those services that you could not give me. Unlike Timothy, Epaphroditus is not very well known. He doesn't seem to have traveled much with Paul, and he's not listed as the co-author or recipient of any letters. He isn't mentioned in the book of Acts, and in fact isn't mentioned anywhere else in the New Testament aside from this letter. So in short, he's a lot like, more like you and me than, say, somebody like Paul or somebody like Timothy. But what we learn in these verses that, is that Epaphroditus was a man who was focused on Christ and living a life worthy of the gospel. In verse 25, we learn that Epaphroditus has been sent by the Philippian church to minister to Paul in prison. We see a little later on in chapter 4 that he had brought along a gift from the Philippian church to help make Paul more comfortable. You see, in the ancient world, oftentimes even the most basic necessities had to be provided by loved ones on the outside. But even in his short stay with Paul, Epaphroditus has made quite an impression. Not only does Paul call him a brother but a fellow worker, someone who has undertaken the labor of the gospel. And even more than that, Epaphroditus is described as a fellow soldier. He has entered into the struggle with Paul, suffering for Christ's sake. And in order to fulfill his mission, he has left everything behind. And he has faced real hardship. And he's almost died. And all of this makes Epaphroditus of the cross worthy of honor as one who put his life on the line for Christ. He lived a life worthy of the gospel. And he's worthy to be imitated. Now, as we close, I must point out again that Paul did not write this letter with chapter divisions in mind. When he wrote chapter 2, verse 30, he went right on to chapter 3, verse 1, where he says, Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. We have taken a detour that has let us see, see uh, some of the suffering that Paul has had to endure and that his companions have had to endure, but this road brought us right back to the central theme of this letter, joy. Not some fleeting, shallow optimism, but true, deep, lasting joy rooted in the work of Christ. So Monument Heights Baptist Church, let us heed the examples of Timothy and Epaphroditus let us apply this text to our lives so that we too may live lives worthy of the gospel in humility and obedience. Let us stand united in Christ no matter what life brings, knowing that God is working through us even at this very moment to redeem all of creation and bring about the day when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that is something to rejoice about. In just a moment, Pastor Chris is going to come up and pray for us. But if you have not experienced 
the joy of Christ, there is no better moment than right this very second to come unto him. So I urge you to find somebody around you. Come find me. Come find somebody on the staff. But talk to somebody about what it looks like to follow after Jesus Christ. We can pray together, please. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you so much for your presence here with us this morning. And Lord, we just thank you so much for your word, just telling us how to live. Lord, we thank you for the sermon we just heard. and Just help us, Lord, to be able to apply the truths we've learned this morning or been reminded of. Lord, even though life is tough sometimes, our joy should be found in you and in the gospel and in the work of Christ in our lives and in the world around us. Lord, we may, not, may we not sit idling in life. May we truly work for you, spreading your message of hope and love and joy and redemption through the gospel. Lord, the world around us is in desperate need of you. Lord, may we live a life that shows the world what being a Christ follower is all about. And Lord, no matter what happens in our lives, help us to show Christ Jesus in everything we do and everything we say. Lord, may we be unified as a body of Christ and be a witness for our children and for those around us. Lord, we can be gentle and kind and we can put others above ourselves, but true Christian unity is allowing Christ to live in us and through us. And Lord, we ask you to help us to do that day by day, moment by moment. Thank you, Jesus, for humbling yourself, for coming to this earth, and to ultimately pay the price for our sins. Lord, we know that we are not saved by the works that we do. But we are saved by what you did for us and we thank you for that. But Lord, may we not neglect the works that you've called us to. May we be obedient to do all you have asked us to do. And Lord, may we never feel like that we have arrived, that we've accomplished everything that we're supposed to accomplish and that we are something, something special. Lord, help us to follow you in humble obedience. Lord, your word is clear that all of us have sinned and that we all fall short of the glory of God. So Lord, I pray that you will forgive us and that you will help us to be reconciled to you Lord, help us to truly repent and turn away from those things that have separated us from you. 
Lord, thank you so much for the promise that you don't give up on us, that you will continue working in us and on us until that work is complete. Lord, may we honor you. Lord, obedience is hard sometimes. This world is truly hostile to us following you. Lord, give us the strength and desire to stay faithful and to follow you no matter the cost. Lord, I pray that our obedience would bring us deep and sincere joy. Thank you, Lord, for giving us others to serve alongside and to encourage and to hold accountable and to follow you. I pray your blessings upon our partnership and ministry. And Lord, may you be truly honored and glorified in us and through us. We pray all these things in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.